1: Welcome to My Strategy with author and personal growth coach, John M. Hawkins. John will provide coaching and inspiration, motivation, and advice on your personal development in order to help you with the best decision-making possible. So now, please welcome the host of My Strategy, John M. Hawkins.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to My Strategy. I am your host, John M. Hawkins. We're coming to you live from the BBM Global Network and Tune In Radio very happy to be here with you today. Uh, My strategy episodes are live and on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Today, we're going to be talking about planning less and doing more, how we can develop a bias for action by focusing on outcomes. Well, again, very happy to be here with you today. Um, Saturday is a great day of the week to reflect on the prior week and think about all you've accomplished and plans For the upcoming week, keeping in mind that now or any time is a good time to assess your personal development strategy, because that's what we do here on the My Strategy radio show. Now, our show continues to grow. We're available on iHeart, iTunes, Player FM, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spreaker, and many more digital platforms. You can go find those past shows in podcast format. You can find me on most social media platforms. My Twitter handle is at HawkinsJohn. That's at Hawkins, John. And my website is johnmhawkins.com. That's johnmhawkins.com. And just like anything in life, we need to have a strategy and a plan to help us reach our goals because the best laid plans don't always work. This week, I'm looking for your stories on action planning, focusing on the outcomes. If you have any good stories, please send them to me at talk at johnmhawkins.com. We're looking for stories, tips, tricks, and other. All right. So today we're going to be talking about planning less and doing more, how we can develop a bias for action by focusing on outcomes. We're going to talk a little bit about the dreaded analysis paralysis. We're going to talk about avoiding letting the decision-making process consume you, to the point that you are not able to execute. We'll talk about some of the strategies you can use to develop your bias for outcomes, whether it's action planning or a bias for action. Talk a little bit about the uh, way to do more and plan less. And ultimately, at the end of the show, we're going to help you develop your strategy and your plan. All right, so let's start off with an article here uh, called How to Beat Analysis Paralysis and Make All the Decisions. When making a decision, especially an important one, most people take some time to consider their options. It says this is completely normal. But what if when weighing your options, you can't get the scales to balance? Instead, you spend so much time thinking through choices you could make or not make, you end up coming to no decision at all. Does this sound familiar? This type of overthinking has a name. It's called analysis paralysis. With analysis paralysis, you might spend a lot of time researching options to make sure you make the best choice. This happens with relatively small-scale decisions, like which microwave to purchase or what pastry to buy at the coffee shop. But when it comes to the high-stakes decisions, like whether to start a new job, or you might be worried that you still will be making the wrong choice, even after doing some careful analysis of the pros and cons. This gets you trapped into an endless loop of what-ifs and what are possibility scenarios. You eventually become so overwhelmed, you end up failing to make any decision at all. I think this is something that many of us can end up in the habit of doing. You've got so many decisions that need to be made. Perhaps you made a bad decision, and you want to make sure that the next time you make that decision, you put in all of the thought you need to. What happens is we end up thinking so much about our decisions and the potential outcomes that we become paralyzed and are not able to make any decision. The article continues to say that usually our decision-making process involves quickly building a list of possibilities. Then just as quickly, we begin to narrow the list down, crossing out the outliers and choices that feel obviously unsuitable. We've also done some shows in the past to talk about divergent thinking which is thinking outside of the box and thinking about all those options. And then there's convergent thinking where you take the options and start to narrow down your focus based on those options that you've come up with in the divergent thinking process. So I'm just going to say that while we're talking about analysis paralysis, this is a very complicated, nuanced topic. And because it is a bit complicated and nuanced, we really want to make sure that we are starting to assess and understand why it is that we are having a tough time making decisions. It might be that we uh, just need a a decision-making framework that we could be using to make better decisions. It could be that our past decisions have not been the best decision. Decisions. And as a result of that, we are uncertain and don't want to end up in that same position. Article here continues to say it's pretty understandable to feel overwhelmed when you believe you must separate one correct choice from the other. And if you believe all these options have merit, then to consider them all equally, you can shut down the decision making process. Explore possibilities causes overthinking. It often helps you to understand why you have trouble making choices. And they go on to talk about some of the things that I mentioned with regard to previous decisions not turning out. You don't trust your judgment. You're getting advice from others, and that is clouding your decision-making process. And I think that what this comes down to is that we all have the ability to get into a situation where we can have this analysis paralysis happening. And so really, we need to understand and assess why is this happening? And it's not just as simple as saying, go out there and just make 10 decisions this week, just make decisions, because we could make decisions that have negative consequences. So what we want to start to do is we want to start to think about how we make decisions. What is the framework that we use? What are those decisions that we should be spending lots of time thinking about? And what are those decisions that we do not need to be spending too much time thinking about? You know, many times we can start to apply a similar pattern to every problem we see. It's like if you have if you're in construction and you have a problem, everything might and you have a hammer. Everything that you approach, you might approach with that hammer. That's the only tool in your tool belt. So as you think about your day-to-day life and what you've been focusing on, we need, want to start thinking about what are those problems that we are trying to solve? Then what are the tools that we have to help us solve those problems? And in some cases, if you're the construction worker and only have a hammer— How do you think the end product would show up or the end product would manifest itself if you only used a hammer to do your job? Well, that's very similar to what happens with analysis paralysis. So that's what the show's about today. You're listening to my strategy. I am your host, John M. Hawkins, coming to you live from the BBM Global Network in TuneIn Radio. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to avoid letting this decision-making conundrum consume you. We'll be right back.
1: What if there were a super tiny device that could diagnose the brain and is smaller than a single human hair? What if you could see inside the brain to help an epilepsy patient during surgery or to help the fight against Parkinson's disease? EasySense.com and learn how, with your help, we can fight these horrific brain disorders. That's EasySense.com to learn more and help support the Broderick Foundation. If you seek a courageous advocate prepared to champion your rights with consumer service agencies that support aging populations, Carol Ann Hamilton is the one for you. Carol Ann is an elder care coach, author, and speaker with a quarter million hours lived experience successfully supporting unculpable aging parents. As a result of a challenging journey, Carol Ann revolutionizes how stressed out caregivers restore serenity to their worlds. She also brings over 25 years of change management expertise in Fortune 500 settings to catalyze urgent transformation within the elder care industry. Carol Ann is a popular speaker at conferences across North America. She has appeared via TV, radio, and print globally. Now you can tune in weekly to get a dose of her inspiration, plus down-to-earth advice to cope with even the most difficult aging parents. Listen Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on Bold Brave Media and TuneIn
2: Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm John M. Hawkins. The show is called My Strategy. Today we're talking about planning less and doing more, and how we can develop a bias for action by focusing on outcomes. Right before the break, we were talking about the dreaded analysis paralysis, which is easy for anyone uh, to get into that habit of analysis paralysis. In this segment, I want to talk a little bit more about decision-making and how we want to avoid letting decision-making consume you. Still got the article from the prior segment. Uh, the article continues to say, "Avoid letting decision making you, consume you. Prolonged thinking might seem the best way of getting the right answer, but overthinking can cause harm." I think this is an important point. You know, as we think about the decisions we make and ultimately the outcomes from those decisions. If we are lucky in our decision making and happen to make good decisions, that gives us confidence. It gives us the ability to go out there and continue to make good decisions because odds are we're going to make some great decisions. Or perhaps you've had a background that supports making good decisions. But for the most of us and many of us, we do not have always the ability to randomly make a decision, and have it turn out good most of the time. So from that perspective, when we start to think about those past decisions and things that we might have done wrong, it can cause us to overthink. And that is what is known as analysis paralysis. This article continues to talk about how analysis paralysis can affect the nervous system which can lead to increased overall anxiety, which can contribute to symptoms like stomach issues, high blood pressure, panic attacks, according to Botnik. And I think this is always important for us because our bodies are so connected to what we do. There's the fight-flight response. There is our central nervous system, which is absolutely brilliant and gives us so many different capabilities to be able to do what we do in this world. But the challenge is that it is also a defense mechanism. It senses danger out there. And when that there is an imminent danger or imminent threat, the nervous system can start to react quicker or it can be giving you signals. And then our brain takes in those signals, perhaps does some analysis And it might come to the wrong conclusion, a situation that seems dangerous, seems intense, might not be as dangerous or as intense as it seems. And that's where, you know, we need to have good connection with our bodies. We need to physically be in the best shape that we can to support what we want to do. And it's not just the physical support, but also from a dietary perspective. Are we eating the right foods to help us? So case in point might be drinking too much coffee in the morning if you, or other caffeine, whether it's tea, soda, or other. If you drink one can of the stuff, you might feel fine. But if you have two cups of coffee, three cups of coffee, five cups of coffee, at some point, you could end up putting yourself into a self-induced anxious state. So as we start to think about and analyze what are some of those things that are keeping us from making these good decisions, what's keeping us in that analysis paralysis mode, we want to start looking at all aspects, which includes diet, exercise, and more. The article goes on to say, you might have a hard time focusing on schoolwork or your personal life if you devote most of your time to decision-making. A more helpful approach involves setting some limits around your decision-making timeline. You might give yourself a week to decide, then set some energy to think each day. Use that time to focus on your decision. Do research, list pros, cons, and so on. When your uh, daily time, say 30 minutes is up, you move on. And I think this is important for us to think about. If we start to think from a decision-making perspective about we have an unlimited amount of time to make a decision, the challenge is we Mm -hmm. have an unlimited amount of time to make the decision so we can put it off or we think that, well, we're going to do a lot of research and we're going to get to that decision. But as you're focusing on one decision, it's very difficult for us to multitask and think about other decisions. So if you if you spend the next month or two months focusing on one decision, how many other decisions are you not focusing on in that particular month? So that's where having a decision-making strategy and figuring out how to go about making those decisions is absolutely critical path for our success. It means that we want to, or at least should, have a framework that we are following. And later in the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the frameworks. And for those who listen to this show, you're going to know that we have a framework that we use on a weekly basis. Now, the one I'll share with you a little bit later is different. But at the end of the day, we need to pick a framework that works for us. Here's an interesting tip for you that really resonated with me. It said factual evidence should certainly should factor into some decisions like those that relate to health and finance. Now, this is very interesting to me, because if you think about it, as you go throughout your decision making process, many of us want facts. We want absolutes. We want to know something, uh, a, a fact, before we go out and make the decision. That's how we get to a truth. What this article is suggesting is that we should only use that factual evidence when it relates to our health and finance. They go on to say when it comes to more personal matters, like deciding whether to keep dating someone or what city you want to live in, it's important to stop and consider how you feel. Now, this is an interesting position here, because if you think about it, if I am in a mode where I want factual evidence and I apply that I need factual evidence to every single decision making, every decision that I need to make, that is going to be an absolute immense amount of data that I need to get. Additionally, if you're making decisions on, you know, what kind of popcorn do I want to eat, you know, what microwave, all these things can take additional time. So what they're saying is limit those, the the facts, the evidence that you need for those two categories of decisions and trust your gut with the rest. Lots and lots of more good information in this article. All right. You're listening to my strategy. I am your host, John M. Hawkins, coming to you live from the BBM Global Network in tune in radio. When we come back, we're going to talk about action planning and developing your bias for outcomes. We'll be right back.
1: Tune into It's All About You with host Dr. Martha Latz, a lively weekly broadcast on BBM Global Network, one of the most empowering shows for time-starved, overscheduled multitaskers. The professional expertise of Dr. Latz is directly available live every Thursday at 1 p.m. to answer and address concerns about relationships, life transitions of career, meeting, dating, and committed relationships. It's All About You with Dr. Latz will expand your understanding of current concerns across your relationships by broadening and expanding possible solutions in developing skills for mutually desired outcomes. Dr. Martha's expertise is as a licensed marriage and family therapist, life, transition coach, and all things to do with communication at work, home and with friends. Check out her website at auniquetherapycenter.com. Dr. RC will share extraordinary resources and services that promote educational success as well as making a difference in the lives of all social workers, as well as the lives of children, adolescents, and teens of today. She will have open discussions addressing many of the issues that we face about our youth and how being employed in the uniquely skilled profession of social work for over 18 years has taught invaluable lessons through her personal experiences. She will also provide real life facts, examples, and personal stories that will confirm that why serving as a child advocate is extremely beneficial when addressing the needs of the whole child. Listen live to Dare to Soar, Saturdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, on the BBM Global Network and tune in Radio, as Dr. R.C. will provide thought-provoking information that will empower, encourage, and strengthen students, families, and communities across
2: our nation. You can also visit her at soarwithkatie.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm John M. Hawkins. The show is called My Strategy, and we're Comedy Alive from the BBM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. Today, we've been talking about planning less and doing more and how we can develop a bias for action by focusing on outcomes. Right before the break, we were talking about analysis paralysis and avoiding letting decision making consume you in this segment i want to talk a little bit about action planning and helping us develop that bias for action or as i stated earlier outcome I've got an article here titled the seven steps of action planning it starts off by saying your team and the operation will encounter challenges or problems that must be overcome here they've outlined seven step process to assist us in solving problems. Keeping in mind that we all have our own framework. So as I describe the steps here, you can, and if there's a step you identify with and you already have called it one thing, go ahead and continue to call it that. What we're looking to do is look at the framework and figure out are there any pieces that are missing from our framework? All right, so the first is define the problem. Second is collect and analyze the data. Clarify and prioritize the problem or problems. Write a goal statement for each solution. Implement the solution, which is the action plan. Monitor and evaluate and restart with a new problem or refine the old problem. Now, while this action planning framework potentially uh, can help with certain decisions, I do think it is important for us to stipulate that there are only certain problems that we want to solve with this robust of a framework. If you need to go figure out what you are going to have for lunch, who to call and and be friends with, that is something that you probably don't need an intensive framework for. So we want to very judiciously use these frameworks on problems that we know needs that data. And based on the last segment, we can come up with our own rule. If it has to do with health or if it has to do with finances, probably a good idea to have the data. Um, but if it doesn't have to do with that and you want to, you know, figure out what sporting events you're going to go to or who to call, um, things like that, you probably don't need as much data. And this is where having these frameworks is good, because it gives us a set way and a a um, a predictive way to solve problems, especially working in a team environment. But just know that this might not one hundred percent apply to our personal development, because of the fact that not every problem that we're trying to solve needs this rigorous of a framework. All right. So the article goes on to talk about um, what we should do. It's the seven steps. First, they say define the problem. Evaluate the situation. Have all possibilities been considered? In this stage, explore all possibilities. Ask all involved or interested individuals for their input into identifying the problem. Is there just one problem or are there more? I want to add to this, you know, think about this from the perspective of are we convergent thinking or are we divergent thinking? Because if you have a framework like this and you've divergent, doing divergent thinking, you're going to be thinking about things that have nothing to do with the task at hand. If you're doing convergent thinking, you're thinking inside the box and focusing on a specific solution. So that's where all of these uh, sessions that we do, all of these shows build on each other. All right, so we've defined the problem. Second is collect and analyze the data. But the good problem statement, we collect and analyze data to prove or disprove the assumption that our problem is the result of inconsistent ration. We analyze the situation by asking questions. By the time you get to step two, this absolutely should be convergent thinking. If you get to the point where you're doing uh, divergent thinking in that collect and analyze, then you really should go back to define the problem statement, in in my humble opinion, because now you are looking at everything as opposed to a specific problem statement. Number three, clarify and prioritize the problems. If there's more than one problem, you'll need to prioritize those problems to focus on the areas of most important first. Ask the following questions to help you sort through the problems, and they go through a list. So There's lots of strategies we can use to clarify and prioritize the problems. One method is to go through, as they've stated here, and prioritize the problems to focus on the most important ones first. There's another school of thought that says don't focus on the most important problems, but solve the problems that you can solve or answer the questions that you can answer quickly. If you focus on the most important, and let's say you have 10 problem statements to solve, you're going to spend all of your time on the top problem, and that's going to be the bulk of it. It's not going to give you confidence and motivation to continue. But let's say, for example, you had 10 problems to solve, and seven of them were relatively easy. If you could get answers to those seven and then leave those three problems... Now that's giving you confidence as you start to do the problem solving. So that's where I say this is a framework. This is not absolutely, you know, how you should go about doing it verbatim. This is where we give you the skills, we teach you about the frameworks, but it's up to you to be the critical thinker and to start to create your and use these tools to your own best interest in solving these problems. I can give you a hammer, a saw, I can give you a bunch of other tools, uh, pliers, but that's where you need to take these tools and figure out how to use them and apply them. Now, the step four, they say, is write down a goal statement for each of the solutions, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely. Now, I support this in 99% of the cases. If you've not put specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, timely information into your goal statement, then you are going to limit your ability for success. How Im- how important is it that we solve this? Is this relevant? Can we even achieve this? Am I going to be able to measure it? Is it timely? And I've talked about the SMART framework in the past. And the SMART is an acronym that stands for Specific Measurable achievable, relevant, and timely. And I've got another podcast on that if you're interested in learning more information. The article goes on to talk about implementation of the solution, monitor and evaluate, and finally uh, restart with a new problem or refine the old. So that's an interesting article on the seven steps of action planning. You're listening to my strategy. I'm your host, John M. Hawkins. We're gonna take a quick break and we come back. We're gonna talk about developing A Bias for Action. We'll be right back.
1: If you're a person caring for someone living with dementia, then this program is for you. It's designed for families and friends coping with the challenges of caregiving. The foundation of care, Susan Culler believes, is communication. Innovative Dementia Care with Susan Kohler provides strategies to keep the lines of communication open between you and your loved one, increase quality interactions, decrease the burden of daily care for you, the caregiver. Join Susan, 11 a.m. Eastern, on the BBM Global Network. Susan and her guests will share techniques so you can facilitate your loved one's ability to safely follow your instructions, participate in daily activities, and express daily wants and desires to learn positive solutions, creative ideas, and practical strategies that will build a healthy foundation of care. Nancy Zorik, a creative spirit whose talents have taken her to the stage and into galleries and exhibitions in several states. Her father, a commercial artist who shared his instruments with his daughter and helped her fine-tune her natural abilities, influenced her decision to follow in his footsteps. Ms. Zorik has enjoyed a fruitful career. Doing what she loves. Listen Saturday mornings at 12 Eastern for the Nancy and Mike Show for heartwarming stories and interesting talk on the BBM Global Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm John M. Hawkins. The show is called My Strategy. And if you're just joining us, welcome. Our My Strategy uh, episodes are live on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Today, we've been talking about planning less and doing more, how we can develop a bias for action by focusing on outcomes. Today, we've talked about the dreaded analysis paralysis, avoid letting decision making consume you. We just talked in the last segment about action planning and developing a bias for outcomes. In this segment, I want to continue talking about developing your bias, but it is a bias for action. And I've got an article here talking about what is a bias for action and how do you build it? The article starts off by saying a bias for action is about less planning and more doing. Many times throughout your career or even your life, you might find yourself In Analysis Paralysis, asking the question, should I do something about this? And if you're a large online retailer, the answer is most always likely yes. The reason they say that is this large retailer has one of their 14 leadership principles as developing a bias for action. Goes on to talk about the company and how it prides itself on rapid innovation And they believe that the reason they are able to innovate so quickly is because employees have developed this bias for action habit and the culture in the organization is fast moving. Now, we talk a lot about personal development, and I think it is so important for us to be in a healthy, positive environment with other like-minded individuals who are excited, who get up every day and want to solve problems, who want to be successful, because that is how you are going to get the energy, the motivation, the ideas to drive forward. So as we go through this, if you're not working for one of these organizations that has this bias for action and a great positive work environment with, to help you with innovation, start thinking about how could you develop this culture with your friends, with your family. If you truly are interested in being better at what you do in personal development, then you're going to see this as something that you should work on and perhaps find a way to recreate this in your own life. The article continues to say that um, bias for action is a new buzzword among entrepreneurs and business leaders as a skill they'd like to see in employees in hopes of gaining much success. However, a bias for action only works if leaders and employees put in the prep work to mitigate risk and pivot quickly while taking forward steps. They say before we get into the nitty gritty of why this skill is desirable and how to develop it in a sustainable way, they first want to dive into some of these statistics that show the importance of this trait. Here's an interesting one. Compared with their more passive counterparts, proactive people are better performers, contributors, and innovators. And I would add that those proactive people are those people who exhibit that soft skill trait of having a bias for action. It's funny how we come up with new terms when really what we're talking about are proactive people. Are you a proactive person or not? That is what a bias for action or outcome is. personal initiative is important in the beginning of the creative process and for idea creativity. The average company loses more than 25% of its productive power to organizational drag. Processes that waste time and prevent people from getting things done. Organizational drag due to excess bureaucracy costs the U.S. economy more than $3 trillion trillion each year in lost output. The most successful entrepreneurs have up to a 43% higher motivation to turn their ideas into action and focus on money than the rest of the working population. Some more interesting statistics, 16% of the top leaders were rated very effective at either strategy or execution. Only 8% were very effective at both. We cannot be an expert at everything we do. So here, 16% were rated very effective at strategy or execution, and only 8% were effective at both, while 63% were rated neutral or worse on at least one skill. So here's the net net. If you are in a leadership position and are a top leader, you potentially, 16% of you are going to be very effective at strategy and execution. So if the leaders of the organizations are only and these are the top leaders, are only 16% effective at making decisions, what does that say for us? What does that say for us? That says that most likely, we have a much smaller percentage of of being effective at strategy and execution. What does that mean? I mean, number one, we might have the skill and absolutely be able to do it. And I'm confident in you. And I know you can develop that skill. What we don't have is the practice. We don't have the practice of doing it on a daily basis. But once we develop those skills, once we get into practice, I believe that we can be as effective in our decision-making of our domain, right, within our own domain, and be as as effective or more effective than those top leaders. Goes on to say that um, while increased choice allows us to achieve objectively better results, it also leads to greater anxiety, indecision, paralysis, and dissatisfaction. When we agonize over a decision, we deplete our limited supply of willpower much more quickly, causing us to feel exhausted and overwhelmed. And by the end of the day, do you feel absolutely exhausted, tired, not wanting to continue? What about midday, 1 p.m.? How do you feel? 8 a.m. in the morning. Think about you and what you do on a daily basis and start to track how you feel. It might be that the way that you feel is directly correlated to your ability to make good decisions. If you're making great decisions, you're going to feel so pumped, so motivated, you're going to continue throughout the day with lots of energy. But if you're getting shot down and not given that opportunity, then that could impact your performance. You're listening to My Strategy. I'm your host, John M. Hawkins. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about developing your strategy. We'll be right back.
0: Are you struggling to care for elderly parents or a spouse? Do you wonder if being a caregiver is making you sick? Are you worried about taking time off work to care for elderly parents and balance work, life, and caregiving? Has caregiving become exhausting and emotionally draining? Are you an aging adult who wants to remain independent, but you're not sure how? I'm Pamela D. Wilson. Join me for the Caring Generation radio show for caregivers and aging adults, Wednesday evenings, 6 Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central, and 9 Eastern, where I answer these questions and share tips for managing stress, family relationships, health, well-being, and more. Podcasts and transcripts of the Caring Generation are on my website, PamelaDWilson.com. Plus my caregiving library, online caregiver support programs, and programs for corporations interested in supporting working caregivers. Help, Hope, and Support for Caregivers is here on The Caring Generation and PamelaDWilson.com
1: according to the american nurses association there are approximately three and a half to four million nurses in the united states so where do all these nurses work what kind of roles do they have what kind of education and training help to prepare them for so many different settings what kind of impact do nurses have on patient outcomes. The World Health Organization has announced that 2020 will be the year of the nurse, honoring the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale. An international initiative called Nursing Now is underway to raise the profile of nursing. The National Academy of Medicine has convened a committee to create the future of nursing 2020 to 2030 that will focus on how the nursing profession can create a culture of health, reduce health disparities and improve the health and well-being of the U.S. population. Learn more and join Joyce Batchelor on All About Nursing, Wednesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on the BBM Global
2: Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to My Strategy. I'm your host, John M. Hawkins. Today, we're talking about uh, planning less and doing more. Right before the break, we were talking about developing a bias for action and the importance of it, keeping in mind that this is a fairly complicated topic, and it does require that we, you know, really start to think about how we go about making decisions, right? You know, earlier in this show, I went through a framework uh, that was a seven-step framework, uh, but as many of you might be aware on this show, I have a five-step framework process that we use, and it's five steps because I don't want to complicate things. I want it to be very simple, but I want us to get in the habit of using this framework, and the goal is to you know, use it once, use it twice, use it three times, and then iterate through so that you can go through these steps you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 seconds for simple decisions because we don't want to... into a situation where we are constantly seeking data where we are not trusting our gut because that ultimately is where we get into the analysis paralysis and that is going to thwart our personal development efforts rather than help us with our personal development so i want to talk a little bit about that framework because I i just think it's important every few shows for us to experience it and think about it because this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to be better people. So from, from your perspective, I want you to think about what are your vision? What is your vision for yourself? What are the goals that you're trying to accomplish? What are you trying to achieve? Where are you in life? What is your current situation? What is your current state? So with a clear picture of where you are in your life, Think about it. Ruminate on it. Are you happy with your job? Are you happy with uh, your, your friends? Are you happy with your family? Where are you in life? Do you have all the money that you need? Where are you in life? And when you have that picture of where you are, you want to compare that to where you think you should be at the at the end of the day where should you be what is that future state aspirationally what are you doing how much money do you have how many friends do you have how big is your family how small is your family think about your future state and ultimately ultimately it comes down to this aspirationally you've got this future state that you are trying to get to but you're in a current situation you're in a current state and the challenge is and what this framework is all about is, is figuring out with the fewest amount of steps possible, how do we get from that current situation to that future situation? Now, let's say, for example, you know, you're know you 10 years old and playing t-ball. There's a lot of life that has to happen <laughs> before before you can start to aspirationally think about that future state. But depending on where you are in life, there might be more decisions or less decisions to be made that's where it's important for you to think about this and say, you know, what are those things that I want to accomplish? And and it comes down to what do you value? You know, what's important to you? You have to prioritize. Is money more important? Is money more important than family? Or is family more important than money? Is health more important to you than a good job? Or is a job more important to you than health? Figure out what is important to you. Now, I would say and suggest that if you don't have health, and you don't have uh, good family relationships, you're not gonna have that support structure you need. That's my view. You might think differently. I will say that I won't waver on the health and, and diet and exercise. If you don't have a body that is ready to go out and do what it needs to do on a daily basis, you're behind the proverbial eight ball and that won't be good for you. All right, so once we understand where we are, we need to figure out through assessing and analyzing what is working, what's not working, pick an area to focus on. And I like what one of the authors said in a previous segment, make, take, data, take data and make decisions based off of health, uh, you know, and, and also if it's financial, that's when you might go out and seek additional data. If you're not, if you don't need to make a health or financial decision, you don't need as much data, and that's where you can start to simplify your decision-making process because you freed yourself up. You don't know what the outcome is going to be of eating a bag of popcorn, and there's not a lot of data that's there to support it. Kind of go with your gut. Look at the label. you know, Make a decision. But if you went through and, and antagonized and looked up the manufacturer and you know looked at the products that they're putting in there and continue this cycle – you're going to get into this bad habit of trying to get data to solve every problem and that will hold you back. So we need to strategically think about what are those decisions we can make where we are able to make them quickly and move on. And then where are those decisions that we need to spend more time? And from a strategy and planning perspective and implementing that plan, which is the fifth step, fourth step, I like to implement things and get them out of the way. I, I'm going to gain confidence if I, if I have 10 problems to solve, as I stated earlier, and three of them are complex and seven are easy. If I focus on those three, unless they're a critical path, that's going to take time. And in the back of my mind, I'm going to say, I've got 10 problems to solve. I'm still on the first one. I've got 10 problems to solve. I'm still on the first one. I've got 10 problems to solve. I'm still on the first one. The other way to look at it is I've got 10 problems to solve. I've got 7 that I can solve right away. If I can solve those 7 right away, the statement in my head is I've got 10 problems to solve. I've solved 7. I have 3 more to go. How does that feel in you know to you to say I've got 10 problems to solve and you know uh, I've got you know 10 to go. Or if I've got 10 problems to solve, I've got 7 solved, that feels a lot better from my perspective. So as we're starting to strategize, put our plans in place, we want to start thinking about it strategically, but also tactically. What are those things that we can do to help with our decision-making process? Finally, once you've implemented your plans and you're starting to make actions and you're starting to have success with those decisions, it comes down to support and evaluation. If if a strategy is not working, don't continue to do it. Pull it out, put in a new strategy. Now, that's not saying we want to be continually swapping strategies in and out, but we do want to take a look at it and get help and support as needed. Take a quick break uh, and we'll be back. You're listening to my strategy. I'm your host, John M. Hawkins. We'll be back.
1: Have you ever wondered why some children recover from their symptoms of autism while others never seem to get any better? After 13 years of research, Karen Thomas has recovered her own son from his symptoms of autism naturally. She now shares how she did it with you in her free webinar so that you can have the right resources and knowledge to help your child. The definition of recovery is to regain health. Karen offers this to you in four stages. Healing the gut. Natural heavy metal detoxification, balancing the co-infections of autism, brain support, and repair. Register now for this free webinar to help you know what you can do to help your child to sleep better, be more calm, improve focus, and reach their fullest potential to live a happy, healthy life. Go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop. Empowering parents with the resources to naturally recover autism from a mom who's done it. The opiate epidemic has reached crisis levels, and with so many families affected by addiction, opiate-related drug overdoses, and death, the time is now to have a real constructive conversation about addiction that could lead to better prevention, treatment, and recovery. Alan Charles, author and keynote speaker on drug abuse and prevention, presents The Alan Charles Show. Alan brings a message of hope, sharing his unbelievable story of surviving a 24-year addiction to cocaine and highlights from his memoir, Walking Out the Other Side, an addict's journey from loneliness to life. His raw honesty and courageous heart breaks the stigma of addiction and offers a unique perspective into the mind of an addict. Join Alan each week as he brings his listeners to a true understanding of the grip of addiction. It is only with this understanding that we can begin to heal. The Alan Charles Show, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on the BBM Global Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my strategy, the personal development radio show. I am your host, John M. Hawkins. Well, if you're just joining us, thanks. Today, we've been talking about planning less and doing more. Before the break, we talked about developing a bias for action and helping you to develop your strategy for action. And in case you missed this broadcast, you can listen on iHeartRadio and Apple iTunes. And if you'd like to have something covered in the show, send an email to talk at johnmhawkins.com. That will go directly to my desk or give us a call at 844-MY-STRATEGY. We've been talking today about planning less and doing more. Many of you have heard of the dreaded analysis paralysis. In fact, most people do take some time to make decisions, especially the important ones. But sometimes the analysis that we do takes so much time, even for small decisions, that we end up being trapped in these endless loops of planning. And if we're spending time in endless loops of planning, it is preventing us from spending the time needed to accomplish our goals. We want to start thinking about ways to avoid letting the decision-making process consume you. Analysis paralysis can affect your nervous system, increase anxiety, It can make you feel tired, you can have a hard time concentrating. So rather than letting decision-making consume you, what should we do instead? Well, one helpful approach is to use in your energy uh, on a decision-making framework and think about a bias for action, a bias for outcomes or action planning. Action planning is a way to help us go through the decision-making process. We talked about the seven-step process, which was define the problem, collect and analyze the data, Clarify and prioritize the problem, write a goal statement for each solution, implement the solution, monitor and evaluate, restart with a new problem or refine the old one. But before we start to implement that in all of our decision making, a very important point came out in today's show, and that is to figure out which problems you would use that framework on. One author suggested that we only use it for health and financial. If we've got health and financial and we need a rigorous framework and data, that would be a great place to use it. If it's something simple, don't use it. That's going to free you up. We then talked about developing the bias for action and how it's more about action and less about planning. Do more. But it only works if the leaders and employees put in the prep work and take action. I also learned that proactive people are better performers, contributors, and innovators. We want to be that proactive person. So how do we go about developing our own strategy? Well, we should take small steps, become comfortable with the risks, avoid distributing all of our decisions, learn by doing, simplify the decision-making process, trust who you are working with, set deadlines, and break your goal up into milestones. Don't drive for perfection, but try to drive for outcomes and getting things done. But all of this is gonna take you being aware of those patterns, those habits that you need to retire and figure out what are those habits and patterns that you need to develop. And that comes down to consciously prioritizing and committing to your goals. And if you uh, need help with prioritization of your goals, coaching can help. Well, that's all the show we have for you this week. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.
1: This has been My Strategy with your host, John M. Hawkins. Listen each week as John reminds us that just like elite athletes get to the top of their sport with the help of their coaches, he is here to help you achieve your highest goals possible. Here each week on My Strategy.